Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and you're listening to the second part of our four-episode journey to Britain and its empire to explore the link between science and the eclectic world of Victorian architecture. We're picking this episode up exactly where the last one left off, in South London's Crystal Palace Park. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I'd recommend doing so now. Then, join me and my terrible Charles Dickens impression as we explore a tale of three museums and of how the past inspired Victorian builders. November weather. As much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, forty feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill. When Charles Dickens penned those opening lines to Bleak House in 1852, the Crystal Palace was still being reconstructed in Sydenham, and its dinosaurs had not yet been unveiled to the public. But Dickens's giant, elephant-like lizard predicted to a T the appearance of the colossal megalosaurus that still stands in Crystal Palace Park. His spot-on description wasn't thanks to any inside information from Sir Richard Owen or Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins. Dickens always had his fingers at the pulse of British society, and at the time, that society was in the throes of dinomania. What better way to show the world's greatest city at the mercy of nature in the midst of a winter storm than by inserting one of the huge primeval reptiles that were all the rage at the time? This fascination with extinct life predated Victoria's coronation. It began with other animals, mammoths from the continent, the giant ground sloth Megatherium from South America, and the marine reptiles and ammonites being unearthed by Marianning on the Dorset coast. But the popularity of dinosaurs was something unique to the new queen's reign. The craze began when Oxford professor William Buckland introduced the world to Megalosaurus. Buckland, when he's talked about at all, is talked about as an eccentric, keeping a pet bear named for an Assyrian king and eating his way through the animals he studied. Much more importantly, he was part of the generation of naturalists that grappled with and added to the new ideas emerging at the beginning of the Victorian era. His most significant contributions were in paleontology. Momentously, he showed that bones from a cave in Yorkshire, far from being vestiges deposited during the Great Flood, were gnawed remains brought there by a pack of now-extinct hyenas. But he's most remembered for Megalosaurus, because Megalosaurus isn't just any dinosaur, it's the first dinosaur. People have been finding remains of extinct life for as long as there have been people, and for millennia many cultures, especially outside of Europe, had been correctly interpreting those fossils as evidence of past life. 
But until 1824, Noah had sat down to write a description of a dinosaur in the same way that we'd describe and name a living organism. Buckland certainly had a sense of the importance of finding a giant reptile in England, reflected in the name Megalosaurus, which means big lizard. But he couldn't have imagined just how much would grow from the seed he'd planted. Iguanodon, the other big star of the English fossil record, was described the following year, and Dinomania exploded. You can visit the bones of the first dinosaur to receive a scientific name at the Oxford Museum of Natural History. They're far from the only testament there to the Victorian fascination with all things extinct. The stuffed dodo a few cases over would inspire another Oxford academic, Lewis Carroll, to create one of the most memorable characters from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And while dinosaurs and dodos in and of themselves make the museum well worth the short trip up from London, if you go, be sure to spare some time for the building they're housed in. It's beautifully designed, but beyond looking fantastic, it's a showcase of how, in the Victorian era, the past was present not only for academics working to unravel the workings of the natural world, but for the architects who designed the buildings in which that work was being carried out. spent the day poking around the colleges and academic buildings of Oxford, your first impression of the University Museum might be that it fits in nicely with a lot of what you've seen. That's no accident. It was built in the style of many of the university's oldest buildings. Notably, it doesn't look much like the university's other great museum, the Ashmolean. Though its building is just a few years older, it's built in the style of an earlier age, when the designs of classical Greece and Rome were all the rage. It's not the Ashmolean's white columns, rigid symmetry, and spare interior, but the much older Bodleian Library that makes for the best comparison to the University Museum. There's one unmissable feature that most obviously links these two buildings built four centuries apart. Arches. There are a lot of them in the museum, mostly surrounding the arcades that encircle the large central hall, but the same shape shows up again in the ceiling overhead. Rather than having a rounded top, these arches end in a point, in exactly the same way as the windows of the library's vestibule. If you've visited England's great cathedrals, you've seen these same arches. They're the defining feature of Gothic architecture, the power style of Northern Europe in the late Middle Ages. And arches are far from the only Gothic touch you'll see in the University Museum. The ceiling is rib-vaulted. That is, it's supported by crisscrossing structural beams. Just as the Victorian era was one of technological innovation, the Gothic builders of the Middle Ages were taking advantage of new techniques, and ribbed vaulting was one of the most important of these. It meant you didn't need to rely on large, heavy pillars to support your building, allowing you to build up and to create huge interior spaces. The soaring halls made possible by this technique are present in both the museum and the library. In fact, the vaulting in the Bodleian Library is some of the most spectacular you'll see anywhere, fanning out from posts in the classic English style. Everywhere two ribs meet, there are elaborate carvings of letters, coats of arms, or human figures, highlighting another feature of Gothic art that both buildings share. 
Each era clearly had a deep love of complexity and ornate decoration. You have to look up to the ceiling to see the Bodleian's most ornate details, but in the museum the complexity comes right down to floor level. You can see it in statue after statue of notable scientists of the past and Victorian present, including William Buckland. And you can really see it in the stonework. To wrap your head around the glorious chaos of it all, start by looking at the peak of one of the arches and moving your eyes slowly downwards. The arch itself is made up of alternating light and dark stones, creating an overall effect of colorful striping. Where the arch meets one of the columns that supports it, you'll see intricately carved bouquets of plants or groups of animals, each one, as far as I've been able to see, unique. And then there are the columns themselves, a riot of colors and textures, because each one comes from a different geological formation in Britain. In both the library and the museum, you can see all these details clearly because of another feature of Gothic art. Rib vaulting, accompanied by external buttresses supporting the walls, didn't just allow the architects of the Middle Ages to build up, but to let in more light than had ever before been possible. It's no accident that so many Gothic cathedrals were famous for their stained glass windows. Natural light is a defining feature of the museum as well, and the Victorians had access to technology that allowed even more to stream in. In the great central hall, the roof is supported not by stone, but by cast iron columns, able to support the same weight with a much, much smaller footprint. And mass production of glass, a luxury item in the Middle Ages, meant that these architects didn't have to rely on windows set high up in the wall for illumination. Just as in the Crystal Palace, they built this museum with a transparent ceiling. It remains as stunning a sight as it must have been when the building opened, arched, heavily decorated glass vaults rising high above the heads of Buckland's Megalosaurus, Carol's Dodo, and a host of marine reptiles from around Oxfordshire. But despite the new materials available in the 19th century, the motivation behind this building is the same that drove the builders of the Bodleian Library and so many other medieval structures. And the museum's lead architect, Benjamin Woodward, was far from the only Briton leaning heavily into the Gothic style. What made this style so popular, and so especially relevant to museums, in an era when new ideas and technologies were being born at a fever pitch? We've seen in earlier episodes of Voyages how the rich and powerful like to return to the styles of earlier civilizations to show off their wealth and power. But why do they do so time and again? And what made Gothic so appealing to Victorian elites? Two of Britain's leading cultural voices were especially influential in making Gothic revival popular, and each would probably give you a slightly different answer to these questions. Let's head back to London to meet the first of these men, whose name you may not know, but whose most famous building you very definitely do. Parliament was one of the many institutions that was changing in the Victorian era. Having long since supplanted the monarch as the real wielder of British political power, access to that power was beginning to expand as the United Kingdom transitioned into a full-fledged democracy. So when a fire gutted the medieval palace of Westminster, where Parliament had met since the 12th century, it was only fitting that it should get a new home appropriate to its elevated status. One of the architects brought in to renovate the palace was Augustus Pugin, who from day one seems to have been dead set on making the new structure gothic. Pugin was so successful in this design that, even if you've never been to London, you can picture the Houses of Parliament and their most famous addition, the clock tower housing Big Ben. 
The building ticks almost all of the Gothic Revival boxes. There are pointed arches galore. There's a strong emphasis on the vertical, not only in the tower where you'd expect it, but throughout the palace. And there's decoration on a scale that can be staggering for someone who, like me, grew up in a country that designs its capitals to look like the Roman Forum. This was not just a matter of personal taste for Pugin, who strongly believed that architecture could provide a moral compass for a rapidly changing nation. A deeply religious man, he believed that reviving Gothic architecture would form a bridge to the faith and social order of the Middle Ages. He thought this was a good thing, but of course not everyone did. Karl Marx arrived in London late in Pugin's life, and the two men probably wouldn't have agreed on much of anything. Marx did agree, though, that Gothic revival marked a return to the past, but he saw this as a sign of an anxious society clinging to a comforting history in the light of a changing world on the brink of revolution. Needless to say, the Victorian powers that be agreed with Pugin, and for the rest of the era they would look backwards even while constructing buildings with mass-produced materials never before available. They'd return to the Gothic well especially often, but Victorian architects also looked to other periods for inspiration. The Queen Anne style, which mixed and matched elements from 18th century English, Dutch, and Flemish architecture, was especially popular. And just south of Pugin's other great work, the Albert Memorial in Hyde Park, architects would make use of an even older style to weigh in on the greatest scientific debate of the day. the Natural History Museum on voyages before, while exploring the path from Darwin's voyage on the Beagle to the publication of On the Origin of Species. In that episode, I encouraged you to use the side entrance, which generally has no line and which gives you easy access to the fossils Darwin collected. But if you're tracking the story of architecture, science, and their entangled debate over the meaning of the past in Victorian Britain, brave the crowds and enter through the original door. The enormous, recessed entryway opens up into the grandest museum hall you'll see anywhere, a room that puts to shame even the giant blue whale skeleton now displayed there. I've been to museums literally built in old churches, and even they feel less cathedral-like than the Natural History Museum, which to its patron, Sir Richard Owen, and its architect, Alfred Waterhouse, was exactly the point. Owen, the brilliant anatomist who gave dinosaurs their name, was on one side of a scientific rift widening as fast as the social gulf between Pugin and Marx. On the other side were Sir Charles Lyell, founder of modern geology and advocate of an inconceivably old Earth, and Charles Darwin and his friends and colleagues, the first generation of evolutionary biologists. Owen advocated a view of nature in which Earth was young, shaped by catastrophes such as the biblical flood, and in which species did not and could not change through time. Early in Victoria's reign, he would have represented the majority of the scientific community, and the museum at Oxford was constructed in the Gothic style in large part to draw a connection between religion and the natural world. But the facts were on the side of the rigorous and persuasive Lyell and Darwin, and an 1860 debate in that very museum is often pointed to as the turning point in the public acceptance of evolution. 
By the time Owen's museum opened two decades later, he was nearly the last scientist arguing for the older view of nature. He may not have been able to muster much of a scientific argument, but he certainly had a knack for making his case through design. Owen was ahead of his time in wanting to build a museum that would include not only research collections, but public exhibits as well. Housing those exhibits in a building that looked more like a church than a museum was one way of making the case for the divine in nature. Owen and Waterhouse chose to look back not to the Gothic cathedrals of Britain, but to the older Romanesque churches of the continent, with solid, and in the museum's case, brightly colored, stone pillars supporting long, rounded vaults. The Great Hall is the grandest of these, and just as in the Oxford Museum, it's topped by a beautiful roof of glass. Owen organized his exhibits in such a way that fossils and living organisms were strictly separated by this Great Hall. While decades of remodeling has mostly erased this false division, the decorative pieces with which Waterhouse adorned his building are harder to move, and they still reflect the original organization. These decorations are incredible. Terracotta tiles of fish, gilded panels of plant leaves and flowers, and gargoyles in the form of pterosaurs, to name just a few. You could spend days just tallying up the diversity they represent, to say nothing of admiring the skill that went into designing their intricate carving. And if you try to do so, you'll notice that, just as Owen intended, the eastern side of the museum is where you'll find dinosaurs, saber-toothed cats, and other extinct organisms, while on the western side you'll see wolves, foxes, and other living species. With the victims of past catastrophes on one side, and the survivors on the other, this museum and its art was Owen's last-ditch attempt to draw a line that, it was becoming increasingly obvious, didn't actually exist. But obsolete as its designers' ideas were, the museum remains one of the most important works of Victorian architecture because of its unsurpassed celebration of natural diversity. And as the other major voice behind Gothic Revival had been arguing for years, celebrating nature and all it means should be at the core of all art. hard to imagine a place more removed from nature than Westminster Abbey, across Parliament Square from Big Ben in the heart of London, but one of Victorian Britain's most active minds saw a connection. The church is probably the most impressive work of medieval Gothic architecture in the city. It's not technically a cathedral, but it was built in the same way, section by section, its stone carved by countless craftsmen over the better part of a millennium. The parts in and of themselves can be impressive for their appearance, admirable for the skill involved in making them, even funny, and together these parts make up an overpowering whole. To the Victorian Renaissance man John Ruskin, 
The feeling you get from a great Gothic cathedral is the same you get from a mountain peak or a rugged coastline. Like Pugin, he argued that Gothic was the standard that all architects should aspire to. But while Pugin wanted Britain to return to the simplicity of the Middle Ages, the more scientifically-minded Ruskin loved medieval architecture for its complexity. He believed that the greatest art was the art that most fully embraced nature, and he made a pretty compelling case that no style emulated nature better than Gothic. He consulted on the design of the Oxford Museum, and you might expect that he'd have been pretty happy with the results. After all, the cumulative effect of the stone pillars from around Britain, the statues of great naturalists, and the decorated forest of columns, to say nothing of the fossils and biological specimens on display, was and is a glorification of the living world. But Ruskin wound up being disappointed with the museum, which he saw as too reliant on mass-produced components and uninspired workmanship. The reason that the great Gothic churches like Westminster Abbey could hold their own against natural landscapes, Ruskin argued, is because their complexity grew organically, just like a forest. Sure, buildings across the UK and the Empire were being built that mimicked that complexity, but until each component of those buildings reflected the skills and personality of the person that crafted it, those new structures would always fall short. Another museum, located not far from the Crystal Palace dinosaurs where we began this episode, shows how these ideas were beginning to be put into practice at the end of the Victorian era. The Horniman Museum may not be as flashy or as large as its counterparts in Oxford or South Kensington. Its greatest claim to fame is a balloon-like walrus that was overstuffed by a taxidermist who didn't realize that walrus skin was supposed to be wrinkly. But more than either of these buildings, it gives a hint as to how this connection between architecture and nature would unfold. Built the year Victoria died, the Horniman is an example of architecture from the arts and crafts movement. Inspired in part by Ruskin's writing, the movement looked back not necessarily to the complexity of medieval art, but to the craftsmanship that made that complexity possible. It emphasized natural materials and themes, so while you won't see the Gothic arches of the Oxford Museum or the pterosaur gargoyles of the Natural History Museum at the Horniman, you will be able to appreciate the grain of the stone a lot more clearly, and to marvel at the skill involved in carving the tree motifs on the building's main tower. Like so much Victorian design, the motivation behind the arts and crafts movement was to use the past to build a better present. Unlike the ornate Gothic revival confections we've visited elsewhere in this episode, though, the style that gave rise to the Horniman Museum would prove to have a lot more staying power, and long after the Victorian era had ended, it would guide architecture to a bold new future. Thanks for joining me on this second leg of our Victorian voyage. We'll return to the arts and crafts movement and what it meant for the future of architecture in the final episode of this series, but join me again in two weeks to meet the Victorians that were most concerned about their present, making use of new technologies and materials to not only change how buildings were made, but to change who they were built for. If you have any thoughts or questions about this or any other episode of Voyages, head to our website at voyagepod.wordpress.com or email me at voyagepod at gmail.com. I'll be posting details on the destinations visited in this series on the site when the last installment airs in January, but you can always head there to learn about older episodes. As always, if you're enjoying our journey through the tangled web of Victorian architecture and ideas, 
Please do what you can to help as many people listen in as possible. Rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcatcher of your choice, or even better, tell as many of your friends as possible. After all, binging a new-to-you podcast is a great way of whiling away the hours of holiday travel. I hope you'll join me again in two weeks for an especially seasonal episode, and for all the voyages to come. <laughs>